welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Father John. Father Sean. And we are down in Colorado Springs, Colorado on the priest convocation. That's right. Here we are. And it's 9.37 at night, so uh, we'll see how long this one goes for. The Archbishop was kind of appalled that we were heading upstairs. We were just having an old-fashioned with him. And uh, with the uh, conference speakers uh, for this year's convocation, so a convocation is when all of the uh, priests of a diocese get together, and we do it uh, first week of May every year here in Denver. Go down to Carro Springs. We're at a hotel here. Sister Miriam James and Father John Burns are our speakers, and we were just hanging with them and the Archbishop. It was great. Yeah, they have a lot of wisdom. This is my second convocation, uh, second year as a priest, right? And um, I'm excited. Should be a good good kind of few days. It's always good to be with the brothers above all. So, Well, we got 199 priests here, I heard. Which is crazy. It's crazy. That's a huge number. Which is almost all of the active diocesan priests in Denver. So the first thing is just to say, like, priest, priestly culture is getting healthier. Mm. When I first was ordained uh, 12 years ago, almost 12 years ago, um, it was a very different feel. Uh, it was kind of an old guard. It was very individualistic. Um, there was kind of different factions. And mm. I feel like we've just had really good leadership that has, uh, starting with Archbishop Aquila, but just with also the guys he's put in place to organize these things. And uh, yeah, it just, it's just got a good feel to it. So uh, one of the fun things, the first night we have a banquet dinner, and uh, they introduce the new deacons. Right. The uh, deacons who are about to be ordained priests. Right. And one of them is my boy, Anthony Fan. That's right. Deacon Anthony Fan, who announced tonight that he was going to uh, Light of the World Catholic Church. That's right. With Father Matt Book as his pastor. Yeah, they get their assignments at the banquet dinner. They sit with the bishop. The bishop hands them an envelope. They open it. Right. So that's what I did two, two, three years ago, I guess. Uh, which was super awesome. Yeah. And then you open the, the letter, and then you get up in front of everyone and say, this is where I'm going. So, yeah, he, he announces it, and then uh, the pa- the new pastor comes up, and everybody cheers, and it's just, it's a great moment. I did tell Book today, Father Matt Book, I said, you know, a handshake, a nice little hug, uh, but don't go over the top, because you weren't here when Father Chris Considine was ordained, but you heard about it. Oh, I heard about that, yeah. It was one of the weirdest moments ever. They were just so excited that Goebel was screaming and running in front of the whole Presbyterate, and Chris just instinctively jumped into him, yep. and it was this weird kind of koala. Yeah, he wrapped mo- his legs around And him. we were just like, oh my, I cannot believe this is, this is the optics of the companions. It's like, wow. But I think everybody understands no, I don't think people understand. I think they make bad assumptions from that. Yeah, so I said, Book, why don't you just give him a nice, firm, masculine handshake and call it at that, which he did, of course, That's being right. Father Matt Book. So, so uh, yeah, so it's, it's going to be a great few days up here. The theme is healing, um, which priests, I think men in general, kind of balk at, but um, these two are going to be really good. Sister yeah. Miriam is... If you don't know the name, Sister Miriam James, uh, Abiding Together is her podcast. Uh, she's just a beautiful soul. And uh, her uh, partner in crime, as you could say, Father John Burns, they're, they're just, it's going to be a really, uh, really good week. So we're looking forward to it. That's right. That's right. You've known Father John Burns for a while, though. Yeah, we were in Rome together. I thought about bringing him up on the podcast, but it was just a bit too late. So yeah. thank you for letting us hang with, with them. And, uh, and, you know, when the Archbishop rolls in, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be there for a while. He's a Sicilian. So, you know, he's going to be, he's ready to hang. 
Uh, and we did hang. And we did, and now we are podcasting. So uh, we're going to jump right into it. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so uh, the name of this podcast is Leaf by Niggle. We thought about renaming it Leaf by <laughs> Nepple, uh, but that might be a bit too That's egocentric. So uh, Leaf by Niggle is an essay that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in 1945. So this is a... This is kind of a glimpse into um, his mind uh, and things that he's thinking about um, as the Lord of the Rings is being kind of developed. Right. He wrote this uh, as he was writing Lord of the Rings right. is what I read. So, right. uh, yeah, they're kind of coming together at the same time. Yeah. So what I want to talk about today is I want to break down Leaf by Niggle um, for you and uh, kind of explain the story draw one kind of basic point. Uh, well, it's like a three point, but it's one point, kind of. Um, yeah, it's three points. So we'll just call it that. <laughs> and apply it to uh, an experience I had, which ended up being um, a very powerful spiritual experience, hmm. which was uh, a ski race called the Grand Traverse. So uh, maybe a brief introduction on that before uh, we go into the uh, into the topic itself. So the Grand Traverse... Do you want to explain what this is? Sure. So the Grand Traverse is a race from, um, Asp- uh, I'm sorry, from Crested Butte, Colorado, and then you end in Aspen, Colorado. There's three different races. One is the ski race, the bike race, and the run race. Father John on April 2nd, I believe, yep. did the ski race, uh, which for you, it was 37 miles with about, what, 7,000 feet of elevation? Well, that's what they said, but... But it was definitely more than that. Definitely more than that. And so 37 miles on skis. Like, so you're you're going for at least 15 hours, it feels like. You know, certainly the, the winners, they're like running. They're like ultra marathoners, so they go a lot quicker. But if you're just um, out there enjoying the day, I mean, it, it just takes... 37 miles is a long time in the backcountry, above treeline for a long time. Um, so... If you do all three, the the skiing, the biking, and the running, it's called the Triple Crown. I have yet to do one of them, so maybe I'll do the biking or something this summer. Are you thinking about doing one of them? I would love to do one of them. So the backstory behind the Grand Traverse is if you grew up in Colorado, you kind of hear this. is This is kind of a, a distant legend. Um, it was started 25 years ago by locals in Crested Butte. Um, if you're coming to Colorado for a family vacation, you need to go to Crested Butte. It's just the most beautiful place ever. Um, and that's where Sean and I spend as much time as possible, as, have great memories over the years. Mm-hmm. When I was in, uh, at Good Shepherd Parish several years ago, just helping out on the weekends, I met this family, Thomas and Samantha Byer, and uh, we hit it off because they love Crested Butte. Mm-hmm. And so Thomas has become, Thomas and Sammy have both become good friends, but Thomas started kind of kicking the idea of like, hey, let's do this. He had done the mountain bike Race. Oh, he has. Okay. Um, and uh, so he had done one of the Grand Traverse. He was looking at doing the Triple Crown. Um, and he basically talked me into doing this thing. Um, you and I have been backcountry skiing for uh, many years and uh, on hut trips and different things. And so I think he saw his combination of being an Ironman uh, who had done the biking and had, had, had really kind of gotten into skiing uh, and doing some backcountry stuff. And then my experience of hut trips and stuff, we could kind of pull this together and, and pull it off. Mm-hmm. Ended up being an unbelievable adventure, uh, which we will circle back to. But the, uh, the story that Leaf by Nepal, that, that story, <laughs> Leaf by Nepal and Bayer, uh, was a 15-hour uh, jaunt through unbelievable terrain. You start at midnight in Crested Butte, 
you go up the mountain and then down and then you just go into the but back you country. Said, you it's said an unsu- it's an unsupported um, race, mm-hmm. so you're carrying everything. Yeah, your Abbey gear. So I'm carrying my water in my chest in, in my jacket in the front to keep it from freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of the level that we're doing, and you have to carry everything. Right. So the questions of like, how much water do you carry? What do you eat for food? Like, how do you do this? Um, There's one aid station. Is that right? Right at the end, okay. they give you a cup of top ramen, which was so good. The greatest top ramen I've bet. ever tasted and hands down will be the greatest ever. <laughs> um, but you said you were above tree line for what? 20 of those 37 miles. Yeah. Something like that, which yeah. is crazy. Like you're just exposed to all the elements then. And one of the elements that we probably forget the most about is just the wind. Like certainly the sun, you bring sunblock, you're wearing a lot of clothes. The sun's not terrible, uh, but it's the wind. Like it just slows you down. It's miserable. You know, it's, it's cold with the wind. It's, it's horrible. So the, it is true. And the wind uh, really for the second half was, was the word. Now the weather was nice. It was a, a waxing moon. So it was about 80% clear night. It was just beautiful. The first couple hours were um it, it, you're just you're skiing under the stars everybody's got headlamps so you just see this kind of that's cool 215 teams you have to do it in pairs uh 60 teams did not finish wow uh and the reason they didn't finish for whatever is there's checkpoints along the way the last of which is at 17 miles on what's called star pass star pass is at 12,500 feet um and you have to be over star pass by 7 a.m that's so, fast yeah that's so, 17 miles in yeah 17 miles and seven hours and there was several um danger kind of avalanche danger zones that they had to reroute us one of which you had to boot pack oh, wow. so you have to take your skis off and everybody has to hike up this thing but that took mm-hmm. forever because you got in a queue so there was some things that really slowed us down my partner thomas Byer, who will likely listen to this podcast um but he can because he's amazing um that he pushed through this at mile seven, he would describe it if he was on this podcast. He bonked. Now, how would you describe a bonk? Uh, I literally can't go any farther right now, yeah. right? I'm, I'm out of energy. I need food. I need um, more salt, so like Gatorade. And you just you feel like quitting. Yeah. So I bonked on Lookout Mountain uh, two weeks ago because I ran into Wunsch, and I was in the parking lot. On and the he's, bike. And, and, the, and he goes, let's do this. And we started right up, and I didn't. I didn't warm up at all. Mm-hmm. We just went right up into 300 watts. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. Um, and so uh, when you bonk, most people are done. Mm-hmm. So whatever happened in those early hours um, or those early minutes, really, uh, seven miles in. And again, like an average hut trip, we're going to a hut. That's like seven miles. That'd, right. be, a, that'd be a fairly long hut trip. So like we say, oh, seven miles, but that's like, that's a very long way. Mile 12, we have our first kind of like serious kind of conversation together. Like, how you doing, man? And uh, by this point, we found out, we realized later that he was hypoxic, mm-hmm. which means not altitude enough, sickness. Right. Not enough oxygen to your brain. Is that correct? Everything, yeah. yeah. So just the body can't go up anymore. Mm-hmm. And the only way to uh, get out of a hypoxic state to deal with altitude sickness is to drop. But the problem is uh, we had about 10 more hours above 11,000 feet Hmm. to finish the race. But once you get over Star Pass, you're 17 miles in. If you don't make it by 7 a.m., they turn you back. Which is crazy because then you're still half your distance. You have to go 17 miles back. Right. And and so it's either that or 20 miles 
to finish uh, to finish the race. Mm-hmm. So it's about six thirty in the morning. We're looking up. Maybe I'll have uh, Katie post this photo. Looking up at Star Pass, and I'm like, "We got this, man. You can do this." And we get up there, uh, and it's six fifty. And we're at the top, but you have to kind of ski down this ridge to get to the actual pass. And this guy who's like up there, like ski patrol, or whatever, he yells out, you have three minutes, all of you. And it's just absolute pandemonium. There's about eight teams up there and everybody starts freaking out. So we rip off the skins, which are these kind of carpet like sticky things on the bottom of your skis, which allow you to go up, lock it in and go down. And I look back up and it's just bodies everywhere because we're skiing this insanely rocky um, just windswept, icy face. And we all have these tiny skis on. Right. Imagine a, a, a hybrid between a cross-country ski and a regular ski. That's kind of what we're working on. It's called ski-mo. Right, because these have to be as light as possible. As light as possible for so many miles. And so I, I get down there, and everybody is kind of panicking, and we're trying to calm everybody down. We make the pass. It all works out. And then we start down the other side of Star Pass, but realize we still have 20 miles to go and that's where the story of the the spiritual lesson of this uh started for me and i think tied into leaf and leaf by niggle which is the story of uh jared tolkien now which one happened first did you when did you read leaf by niggle i read leaf by niggle thanks to john herbert cooney uh who runs the tim literary (laughs) society at uh saint john vianney seminary and he assigned this to us i had never read it so this was just a couple weeks ago so this was after the um, Grand Traverse. After the Grand Traverse, I had written down some notes that I thought it'd be good to reflect on, like, because this was a really spiritual experience for me. It sounds weird to say that, but it wasn't just a physical, it wasn't just one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, it was also, I just learned a lot about myself and prayed a lot, and uh, Thomas did as well. Right. Well, uh, if he's hypoxic, he's not going to be speaking to you much. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't talk to me for there's, hours. There is this video that uh, that John, Father John posted on Strava, uh, right? Strava now has, you can include like 30 second videos or whatever. And you're at, the, I think it was on Star Pass. You're t- like taking this video, just like, all right, up here at Star Pass at 6.30 in the morning. Da, 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 da. All right, say hi, Thomas. And Thomas just looks at the camera, looks, <laughs> looks back, and then just keeps walking. He yeah. doesn't say a word. Oh, no, yeah. That was many, many hours. Uh, he was, because uh, one of the, one of the, uh, well, several of the effects of hypoxia, which we were able to realize later, um, is irritability. Mm. So you just become really pissed off. Yeah. And Thomas, my partner, is one of the most just like gentle. virtuous, yeah. gentle, solid men ever. So I was like, man, he really is, is really miserable. Um, and just you don't have an ability to kind of problem solve, work together it must affect the executive functioning of the brain. So you're just kind of like, okay, we're doing this, but you can't leave your partner, nor would we have left each other. Right. Um, but you're saying to yourself, are we going to, are we going to finish this thing? Mm-hmm. So we're coming down star pass. We, we hit this thing called geos bonfire. It's basically the bottom of the pass and these guys snowmobile up and start a bonfire mm-hmm. just to warm you up a little bit. Cause it's, it's, that last hour before sunrise, as you know from our alpine mm-hmm. experiences, is very cold. It's always the coldest. It's always the coldest, and yeah. so we were we were pretty cold. And uh, we got down there eating our sandwiches and realizing, oh, dude, we we have a long, long way to go. Mm-hmm. So we'll pause there with the story and go to Leaf. Great. How's that sound? Sounds good. 
All right, so Leaf by Niggle, a story, again, uh, 1945 from J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, you can find this online. It's very uh, short. It's only 10 pages long, and it's a very curious essay. And I'm going to try and describe the basic kind of contours of it and then pull out the basic idea that I think applies for me to this story of the Grand Traverse, and then we'll hopefully kind of wrap this thing up. Does that sound good? So here's how it begins. There was once a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he'd have to start sometime, but did not hurry with his preparations. So the story is, it seems to be situated in rural England or whatever, you know. But Niggle is a painter, and he spends uh, his the last part of his, or the story, I should just say, the whole part of the story is obsessed with this painting. He starts by painting a leaf. And, and uh, Tolkien says this, uh, that Niggle was a painter, and he was the sort of painter who could paint leaves better than trees. So he's really good at detail. The detail, yeah. You remember that? Yeah, mm-hmm. Sean listened to this on the way down today. He spent a long time on a single leaf, but then it took off and then kind of became this whole tree and then this landscape and then this whole thing. But the story plays between this painter who's obsessed with this painting and then his neighbor, whose name is? Parrish. Parrish. And what's Parrish's deal? He has a lame leg, so he can't walk very well. He limps around. He's, he's really needy, and so he's always calling Niggle. He's saying, hey, like uh, me and Mrs. Parrish, my wife, like we need your help. And uh, there's one point where Mrs. Parrish falls ill, and Niggle, like it's this kind of debate within himself. Like, do I go take care of her? Do I go take care of them? And it's raining outside. Maybe I'll get sick if I go in the rain and all these different things. And uh, he really does have a heart of compassion, though. He does go and help them in the end. So Niggle leaves his painting and he goes into town to find the doctor and to get their house uh, repaired, their roof repaired, because Parrish can't do anything. And he ends up losing, getting sick. And then uh, it turns out the Parrish is just kind of helpless in general. Uh, and he kind of resents him and struggles with that. And then, um, and then the story all of a sudden takes this weird apocalyptic turn yes and this you're, is where i thinking, got confused you're thinking this is like the hobbit this is like a nice little hobbit story and then it gets crazy so um the 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 story then continues where all of a sudden uh niggle is um kind of sick and he's kind of working on the painting and this guy comes by and says um hey it's the driver arrives with him and says the the journey is about to begin Driver, he chattered. Driver of what? You and your carriage, said the man. The carriage was, was ordered long ago. It has come at last. It's waiting. You start today on your journey. So then Niggle begins this journey, leaves his home. He doesn't have any time to prepare. And he gets, uh, the driver takes him to a train and the train takes him. But the train passes through this kind of black tunnel. And this is where it starts to get really kind of trippy. Mm-hmm. I was going to say psychedelic, but it's not, <laughs> it's not really psychedelic, but it, it's kind of eschatological we could say right and so then uh he falls ill he has no luggage and what happens he finds himself in this kind of hospital type thing and again he there's you got to read the story to kind of understand there's certain cues here that say this is not just a story anymore this is like taking a different course there's these different kind of characters, the first voice, the second voice, and they're kind of assessing him. And he stays there. And, and the real kind of first cue is like um, he stays there for what he feels like a century, he describes it as. And so he says, at first, during the first century or so, uh, he used to worry aimlessly about the past. 
One thing he kept on repeating to himself as he lay in the dark, I wish I had called Parrish the first morning after the high winds began. I meant to. The first loose tiles would have been easy to fix. Then Mrs. Parrish never would have got cold. Then I never would have got cold. Then I should have had a week longer to work on the painting. So the first part of this weird kind of post the, the travel, after the travel, into the black tunnel and into this kind of new life, you could say, um, he's just obsessing over things in the past. He's kind of replaying and rethinking about these things, worrying aimlessly about the past. Then at a certain point, um, he starts to get enough rest where he stops thinking about it. And then they put him to work. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm, a little bit. Okay. So then they say, um, th- then it's just like, yeah, now you're, you're going to start doing, you, you are a carpenter and you're, you're doing these things and he just works and works and works. And this might be another century. We don't really know what it is. Um, and then there's this conversation with these two voices where he hears in the room while he's sleeping and they're saying his heart's in the right place. We think that he's ready for what? Ready to go. Ready to leave this kind of hospital. And then it goes to the third part of the story where he gets back on a train, but the train is his name and it takes him up into this kind of beautiful grassy field and he realizes that he's looking at the painting itself. Right. That he's now in the painting. Right. The trees were there. The mountains are there. Uh, It's just like this beautiful forest that he gazes upon and he realizes, here's the tree. Here's what I was trying to paint. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on a bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared and the bike was rolling over a marvelous turf. It was green and close. Before him stood the tree. His tree. Finished. So this is the tree that grew out of the leaf that was the, the painting. If you could say that it was a tree, that it was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed, but had often failed. He gazed at the tree and slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, which was at last realized. Hmm. So the interesting thing now is this third section of the kind of after the travel is that he's living in the painting itself and he's set and he's seeing the birds and he's seeing he's astonished by everything he sees the forest um and he says uh and, and the perceptions are all different he's in a different place this doesn't kind of make sense time and space is not working the same after a time niggle turned towards the forest not because he was tired of the tree uh but he as he walked he discovered an odd thing the forest of course was a distant forest yet as he approached it even enter it without losing its particular charm he had never been able to walk the distance without it turning into mere surroundings. So the, tr- the, the, the landscape itself changes as he enters into it. It's just not, this is not a regular world, is what Tolkien is trying to say to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then he starts to say, you know what I wish I had here? What's missing from this landscape? Perish. Mm. He starts to desire the one guy who drove him absolutely crazy. Right, the guy with the lame leg. The guy with the lame leg. And he, he, all of a sudden, Parrish shows up in his painting, in the landscape, and he finds, and they end up building a house together. Like, they, they build this settlement. Um, and then, of course, uh, he says, we shall finish this evening. We're going to finish the house. The tree is, the great tree is in full bloom. And he says, after that, we should go for a really long walk. It was kind of Hobbit-esque, but again, very kind of eschatological and interesting. So the next day, they set out. And they walked along, and they came right through the distances to the edge, uh, and they saw a man. He looked like a shepherd, 
but he was walking towards them down the grassy slope. So they meet the shepherd. And at this point, the shepherd invites him to walk into, to leave the landscape and to go into these kind of everlasting mountains, to leave this parish, Niggles country, as he calls it, Niggles picture, and to go out beyond it. Do you remember this? Is this making sense to you? It's making sense. Uh, the reason why I'm not remembering this just for our listeners is because I don't do audiobooks very well. That's okay. And uh, this was an audiobook on the way down. I just also told you to look at this. So <laughs> He was going to learn about sheep and the high pastures and look at a wider sky and walk even further and further towards the mountains, always uphill. Beyond that, I cannot guess what became of him. Even little Niggle in his own home could glimpse the mountains far away, and they got into the borders of the picture. But what they really, what they were really like, what lies beyond them, only those who have climbed them will know. Hmm. So he's leaving the landscape of his picture, now reality, and moving into these kind of everlasting hills, into the mountains. This, for me, uh, I thought of C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce where the mountains are kind of the heavenly landscape. You remember mm-hmm. that? So the, the Great Divorce, they come up on the bus ride, and there's this interaction, but they're, they're pointing into the mountains and saying, go up to the mountains, mm-hmm. and, and kind of these cities on the mountaintops that blends into the perfect sun sunrise. It's always, yeah. The sun is always breaking, and it's this, this sign of the eternity and the perfection of heaven. I'm thinking about Tolkien and Lewis sitting together at hmm. the uh, Eagle and Child yeah. and just talking through, and you just wonder, like, where they think, who thought of this first, like using the mountains as this image? I don't know, mm. you know, but uh, I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And uh, and so Parrish stays behind because he says, I need to stay here and wait for my wife. Um, I'm not ready to go until she's with him. And then uh, it kind of takes this kind of wild turn at the end. Um, and they end up naming the the land. Um, it was a train for Niggles Parish in the Bay, and they said, what shall we call this? We'll call it Niggles Parish, was the mm-hmm. name of the, the painting turned landscape. Uh, and that's how the, uh, as the best introduction to the mountains, it's a holiday, a refreshment, it becomes a place of convalescence for others. And that's how the story ends. Very strange. Very strange. Did it strike you as strange? Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. But I think I do appreciate the the detail of, right, I, I really understood probably the opening and then towards the end, the when he gets on the journey is where I get a little confused. But I love the detail of Tolkien just going into like uh, who Niggle is at first and like he's the best painter and, and he can paint a leaf better than anyone and how, how much focus he has on this and then um, the, the language around um, Parrish as well. Uh, but to see him at the end of like the person who has annoyed me the most is the one that I wish was here the most. Yeah the one that I kind of love the most. Yeah, that's it. So here's a re-venture into dangerous territory. This is kind of, uh, and I say dangerous because we're trying to now interpret what was Tolkien saying in this story. It seems to me to be an allegory of purgatory. Mm. Here's the problem. Anybody who knows Tolkien knows that the guy did not like allegory. Mm. He didn't write allegory. Lewis wrote allegory, right? You read the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is God. He's the Christ. Creator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's the creator. Um, so you have to say, well, we got to be careful, kind of using this direct allegory to say that these three stages that that the journey, so that the the carriage that comes to take him away and the journey that Niggle has to take 
is the journey of death into the next life. Mm. That the train passing through the dark kind of cavern uh, is death and passing into this kind of three-staged purgatory, as we could describe it. First, the kind of hospital convalescence, then the workhouse where you're just doing and working, and, and then lastly, the landscape and the place, and then the meeting of the shepherd who then invites you into the, into the mountains, mm. which is heaven. So I think it's very allegorical, and I, don't, I think that we can say Tolkien does not like allegory, so it's not a direct connection between this means this, but this is certainly heavily allegorical language. Mm-hmm. So there's a spiritual meaning to what is literally being written here. The story is not just literal. It has a spiritual dimension to it. And I think that it is purgative. This is the story of what happens after we die? Well, we, and it, and it, and it just puts a, an imagery in a, and it paints in a new la- lens, like what is purgatory actually like? Like what are we going to be doing in purgatory? Mm. Is it just this place where we go to just suffer and, and be miserable until God finally lets us out and then we go to heaven? We know that purgatory is a place that exists uh, until the second coming. It will not exist after the second coming of Christ at the end of time. Um, it's not a permanent place. It's not. It, it's not. There's not three different options for, for the afterlife. This is a purgatory is a place of preparation for heaven. Mm-hmm. It's a place of being made perfect so that you can enter into heaven. Um, and we don't think of it like that. We think of it as a place where you just have to kind of go and I don't know suffer kind of randomly until you get to go. Mm-hmm. Then you go to heaven. Yep. And I think I, I drew out of this three things. This is the threefold kind of thing that I would say. Purgatory has three stages. Reparation, detachment, and restoration of relationship. I think what, what Tolkien's up to here is saying these three different places that Niggle goes to after... He takes the great long journey mm-hmm. through death into the next life is a threefold kind of kind of interior healing and purification that I think describes the essence of, of what purgatory is, and they build on each other. Yeah. So the hospital would be reparation then. Is hospital would be at? reparation. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of workhouse would be detachment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the landscape, landscape would be the restoration, restoration of relationship. Hmm. So talk to me about the first one. Reparation. What's going on in the hospital here? He's laying there thinking about his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's thinking about uh, what he would have done differently. Man, I wish I would have had more time to to uh, paint that painting. It would have been more beautiful. Like we, we, we look back at our life and we say, man, I wish I would have done this differently, right? Because we're, we beat ourselves up. And sometimes our shame, our wounds get involved there too. But purgatory is a place where we repair a lot of that. It's a healing, right? Reparation has this sense of repairing relationship, repairing different things for the sake of healing. We go to the hospital to heal these things. And so, yeah, to to that analogy then, to that allegory, it seems like Tolkien would be saying, we need to heal the things that happen in this life. So those times where Niggle failed to visit um, Parish or failed to serve them well, you need to be healed of that. Yeah, that's it. And I, so I think the, the notion of reparation, repairing things, we need to repair 
a lot of the damage that happens in life. Mm. There needs to be a place where that happens. Heaven is not the place where that happens. Heaven is a place of beatific vision and communion with God, where you see God face to face, and you live in total and complete union with him. Mm-hmm. It's the perfection of, of life. That's what heaven is. Heaven is Christ. But before that happens, I mean, just think about the brokenness of human life and the brokenness of relationships. We already started talking about this. This whole convocation is about healing. Yeah. And purgatory is a place of healing. Reparation is a kind of healing. Like things have to be repaired. But for a long, long time, at the beginning of Niggle's time in purgatory, we could say, it's just thinking through everything in life. And it starts with his own kind of internal monologue and his own kind of self-diagnosis of things of like, man, I wish I would have done this. What I really should have done was finish the painting. Mm. That's what I should have done. That's what he obsesses over. And which is interesting because he, he, the whole reason he gets sick and doesn't finish the painting is because he didn't actively choose quickly to repair the roof Interesting. So yeah. there's the reparation theme of like, mm-hmm. if he would have repaired, and he says this, if I would have repaired the roof right away, I wouldn't have gotten sick, or she wouldn't have gotten sick, I would have gotten sick, And but he was so kind of uh, monomaniacal, just so focused on, um, I have to finish this work, mm-hmm. this painting. So reparation becomes the first kind of thing, but I think reparation is just kind of working through and again, purgatory is not in time in the same in the same kind of way. Um, we we move out of time and space, and that's what Tolkien's trying to kind of capture with these kind of interesting images. So you have the sense of like the first thing we're going to do is like all of our life is going to be placed before us, and we're going to have to kind of work through that. But we have to be converted and healed through the process. So it starts with like, oh, I should have finished the painting oh, Paris was such a pain. If that wouldn't have just worked out, whatever the circumstances of your life are, and you think about every single day this plays out, but the example of the story, Leaf by Niggle, um, is is a story of the, the one particular painting and the one idea that um, he thinks this is the problem and this is what have made fulfillment in this life, and it actually didn't. Mm. And he has to kind of be repaired of that vision of this is what perfection looks like. Mm. So that's the first thing. Second thing is detachment. At a certain point, he gets so exhausted and fatigued, but he gets rest, and he stops just thinking about it. He stops perseverating and obsessing over perish this, the painting this, this. He just stops worrying about it. And then he gets to work, and he's a carpenter for a long time. And it says at one point he had no time of his own. He, uh, he They just worked him constantly. But he, uh, he says... He had no time of his own, and yet he beca- he felt like he had become master of time, of his own time. He began to know just what he could do with it. There was no sense of rush. He was quieter inside, and at resting time, he could really rest. So as the second phase of purgatory begins, he's actively working. But I see that as kind of detachment, as, as a way of saying you're freeing your heart from the preoccupations by which you measured life. Hmm. And that's kind of the second phase of purgatory, according to Tolkien, you could say here, is this you have to just kind of, eventually you just rest and you move beyond it and you kind of get reordered with time and with reality and with things that really matter. Mm. And the painting was not the end of things and Paris was not the problem. And the circumstances of life, which we think are the source of frustration, are actually not. Mm. That's really the second phase, I think. Yeah, I love that. And I think detachment is so important with 
like the reparation has to come first. I have to repair these things. But I love that image as you just phrase it of, of like, uh, eventually he just gives his heart over. He's not trying to control these things. And I think control, like detachment is often the antidote towards our control. We like to control our life. We like to control. I like to look back and, and say like, I don't want that memory to be that way. So I'm going to try to manipulate it and control it to be mm-hmm. a different kind of memory. Yeah. And that's not the way it works. We have to detach from these things. And part of detachment again, going back to the Marian heart, right, is is that surrender to say like, Lord, I don't need to control this. I need to be completely detached from it. Detached from my opinions, detached from my kind of um, the way I want people to perceive me, right? Our pride that goes into that. And for Nigel, it's, it's he needs to detach himself to really caring about these things. Yeah. Because at the end, it's like, you're going to go to heaven and be in the beatific vision, as, as you just mentioned, you're not going to care about these this painting anymore, even though this is your goal, uh, you, why you existed uh, as a painter. That was like your your career in a certain sense. And it's like, maybe maybe not. Maybe I just need to be completely detached from that. Like, Lord, what are you calling? What do you, what do you want to give me? What can I receive from you? Yeah. I remember one time I was talking to Gronsky in spiritual direction. This was years ago. And uh, I was just totally obsessing over something and just frustrated and just totally just myopic in the way that I was thinking. And he said, I said, do you have any advice? And he said, yeah. He said, heavy on the Verfumbachheit and light on the Galassenheit. And I was like, got it. And I knew what he was talking about. Verfumbachheit, it's two ways of thinking about detachment. Verfumbachheit is the German word for kind of like readiness or disponibility of just kind of availability. Mm Mm-hmm letting your heart kind of be malleable and, and changeable in a way. And Galassenheit is just like unaffected by everything. And we think that detachment means that you just become Galassenheit, just kind of like nothing matters, nothing phases me. But that's not it. It's, it's exactly what you said, which was it's about detaching myself from my precon- the ways that I precondition relationships, precondition my approach to reality, the, the presuppositions that operate in terms of, I need this to happen so that I can be happy. That's what has to die. Mm. But that actually makes us more available for, again, this image of the work, of the carpentry that he kind of sets his task to. And then the voices kind of chime in and they say, okay, his heart's in the right place. Now he's ready. Mm. And they send him off on the last part of the journey before meeting the shepherd and heading into the mountains which is the landscape itself, which is so interesting to think of purgatory as the reality, living in the reality of the things that we dreamed of in this life. Mm -hmm. The, The experiences of truth, goodness, and beauty, the ways that we created beauty in our own lives, the ways that we tasted heaven, but they become reality. The fact that the leaf that is the tr- that turns into the tree, which turns into the landscape, becomes the place whereby the final purpose of purgatory comes to be um, is just a remarkable and fascinating image. And you have to you have to read it to really understand this because I I can't describe it well enough. But he uh, um, that becomes not just a place in itself, but a place for the final work of purgatory, which is the restoration of relationships. Mm. The most remarkable thing is not so much that he finds himself living in the reality of his painting, but that he actually desires to be with Parrish. Mm. That the guy who was just super annoying, who right. quote unquote ruined his his life's work, um, 
is he just is like, I miss him and I want to be with him. Mm. And I think that's going to be the last aspect is rebuilding our life within the, the paintings of our dreams, which become the landscape of purgatory with the people that we were broken in relationship with, that we were alienated from, that we didn't, that things were not reconciled with. Mm. The thought of me living in my dreams as reality, the paintings of my life as the landscapes, precisely with the people that I'm unreconciled with as the place, as what purgatory is, well, that's crazy. That's terrifying. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of comments. One would be, I think this is the tension sometimes with, with justice and mercy. Um, at the end of time, we want things to be justified. We want like the wrongs, like we want people to, in a sense, to be punished for the wrongs that they have done to me. Uh, and, and certainly like there will be a justification of this at the end of time. Like God will restore all things into their proper order. And like the wicked will be punished and the good will be blessed and whatnot. But we also have to recognize like we actually long all the more for God's mercy. And yeah. this is Nigel saying, I want to have mercy on parish, despite the fact that he was like really frustrating and like really got under my skin all the time. Like I actually desire to love him and to be with him. Yeah. Um, and that's good and that's normal. And that's, that's, uh, that should be normal, I guess. In in the end, um, we should long for that. The, um, the other thing I would say is I think <clears throat> with regards to restoration, this is very, very Christian, and the Bible speaks of this all the time. Like all things will be reordered, and in creation, especially. One of the passages, right, that Isaiah brings up a few times is, uh, "The lion will lay with the lamb, and the snake will play with the the baby, the cobra." Um, and it's just really interesting to think about that because, in a certain sense, it's like, what, like, what does this mean? How, what's going on here? But I think this is the biblical way of saying. God will restore the natural order of things and things will all be in harmony again. Things won't be fighting and mm. the snake won't be, the, the cobra won't be biting at the um, baby and the lion won't be trying to eat the lamb. And certainly like, okay, it might be like, oh, this is cute. This is nice. But like, no, like this is the proper restoration of things. Yeah. And this is Niggle wanting to be restored with, um, with Parrish. Yeah, that's it. And that is a work that we do not accomplish. Hmm. And uh, I think that one of the temptations in life is to think that we have to fix everything. We have to work it all out. Hmm. We got to get everything right. Or uh, pretend like everything's fine and just live in the illusion that like I don't have to deal with anything. I'm just going to check out. Check out from problems. Check out from conflict. Yep. Those are the two extremes that we go to instead of as you said earlier, that kind of Marian disposition of a trustful surrender that God is actually real and that he's actually working. And then in the end, things are going to, they're going to be reconciled. My yeah. life will be reconciled, but I will not be the one to reconcile it. Hmm. And so one of the ways that that happens is that God gives us little mini purgatory moments throughout, throughout life. life. And that Brings us back to, to the, the Grand, Grand Traverse. Traverse. Here it is, folks. So we descend down Star Pass at 7 o'clock in the morning. I have a hypoxic partner who's fundamentally miserable at this point. We have no ability to communicate. We have 20 miles to go, which is a massive, massive distance. We still mm -hmm. have to cross over Taylor Pass, cover the, the, the Ridgemont Ridge, which goes forever, and then finally at the end, after hill after hill after mountain after mountain, we will descend 
Aspen Mountain Drop, 3,000 feet into the center village where his wife, Samuel, will be very excited to see us, and we're just going to be wrecked. So what happened there? Well, I went through these three phases. Mm-hmm. Reparation, detachment, restoration of relationship. So you know me well enough to know we're in a critical situation in the backcountry. Am I going to check out or am I going to try and overly fix everything? <laughs> Definitely the latter. Definitely the latter. So I spent the first couple hours talking him through things, running scenarios, encouraging, kind of doing everything I could, giving him food, trying to pace us. I mean, it was just torturous, and he was just in the zone. By this point, he was just pure willpower, mm. which was amazing. Amazing. One of the most remarkable feats of will I've ever seen that he, that he did it. He finished. finished the Grand Traverse. It was remarkable in a hypoxic state for like, probably 12 hours um just the just the sheer level of willpower there is just unbelievable but the reparation stage the repairing stage was i'm trying to repair the relationship and the situation we find ourselves in i'm trying to do it it's me being self-reliant classic father john move i've done this for decades this is what i do i take care of situations i take care of people i resolve problems i get it done this is where i find my dignity and my worth okay that lasted for several hours, and it was, became very clear that um, not only was it making me more miserable, it was really just annoying the hell out of him right? because he was just like, I don't want you to talk to me anymore, right? Then we got on top of Taylor Pass, and I looked around, and I looked over at the Maroon Bells and Pyramid, and I looked mm-hmm. back. You could see Star Mountain behind us where we had come from. Yep. And I just thought, you know what? You have a lot of hours left. You got to take a different approach. And it was so, I was so mentally fatigued from, from trying to fix and resolve the problem that it was just like, hmm. all right, let's just work. Detachment. And at that point, I just sat behind him and just didn't say anything and just skied behind him. And he hmm. set the pace and we moved slowly on the uphills because he couldn't breathe. Um, but it was just like, we're getting it done. We're making our steps. And it was that point when I had to surrender all of my pride and expectations around, this is the timing. This is when we're going to finish. Everybody's watching this thing. Or even, are we going to finish? That was the first point where I was like, we might not finish this thing. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't finish by 6 p.m., you're disqualified. Mm-hmm. Um, or he doesn't make it. And we have to figure out somehow we're going to get out of here. Yeah, rescued. And we had a conversation around that. But I, it took me hours to get to that point of detachment where I was just like, you know what? I guess I'm stuck with this guy. And I don't care anymore. But I had to acknowledge the fact that I was like, I'd rather go at this alone at this point. And he knew that. He felt bad because he was like, I, I feel like I'm slowing you down. And I, 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 but I can't leave him mm. and he can't leave me. Like you can't do that in the race, right? Uh, which was a really good thing for us both because we're both kind of tempted to go at it alone, which is that's Nietzsche to the core, right? It's just to be your own man. You can go faster. You can do your own thing. You can excel and achieve your own expectations and kind of all this kind of modern individualism that we just, we just soak in. And especially for those of us who are kind of intense, just kind of intense. <laughs> uh, we live from this. And that had to die. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was a torturous death. I mean, this is hours of in my own head on these topics. 
But that led to the third point, and this is the landscape, which is where I came to a realization. I was like, I'm with a, a man that I really love, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, and I wouldn't want to be by myself right now. Mm. And that was the final miles, which were torturous mm -hmm. because it was still uphill and it, it was just like... How, how are your feet doing at this point? Destroyed. In fact, you can see yep. people think when I wear Birkenstocks, they think I paint my toenails because <laughs> I have blisters under my big toes and they're purple and they've been purple since for over a month now. So they might be purple for a while. You might lose those toenails actually. Yeah, that'll probably happen. Um, so the, the feet are completely destroyed. Thomas is been in hypoxic forever um we're just completely exhausted the snow has turned into mashed potatoes at this point because it's three o'clock in the afternoon mm -hmm. and it's just you're slogging through step after step you're just absolutely exhausted but i just i realized in that moment i was like i would actually rather be with this man in this state than by myself mm -hmm. and that's the third part of purgatory that's what Niggle does when he realizes I'd actually rather be with Parrish. This mm -hmm. guy who's annoying me, who's frustrating my plans, whatever. In the end, I actually want to do this with him. And that's the last part, the most important part of purgatory is that we're made for communion. Mm -hmm. We're not made to be alone. And purgatory and heaven are not about being alone with God. It's about entering into God who is himself a relationship, which means we have to be totally relationalized in purgatory. If there's one thing I would say we become, it's totally relational. It's not just arbitrary suffering because we sinned in the past. It's because the sin of our life made us anti-relational or non-relational, and we have to be totally relational. We have to understand ourselves completely in relation. That's what it means to be perfect. To understand ourselves as nothing other than relation because that's the perfection of God, and that's what it means to be a person. Mm. That's what that's what Nigel realizes. And the story ends with this line, unless you had any points on that real quick before I go into no, it. No, go for it. Because we are running out of time and it's getting pretty late here. It's 10.30. So here's how the story, one little line at the end. So the story kind of bounces back into this conversation of guys who are still back in this life and they're talking about Niggles and they got his house and they, they got the painting and, um, and Tolkien says this. That was probably the last time Niggles' name ever came up in conversation. However, Atkins, this is one of the characters, preserved the odd corner. Uh, preserved the odd corner. Most of it crumbled, but one beautiful leaf remained intact. So of the whole painting almost finished, Niggles' life project, one little leaf remained. Atkins had it framed. Later he left it to the town museum, and for a long while, leaf by Niggle hung there in the recess and was noticed by a few eyes. But eventually the museum burnt down and the leaf and niggle were entirely forgotten in his old country. What's the point of leaf by niggle? The leaf expressed the essence of the man, but his purpose was not his painting. And the purpose was not his self-expression. The purpose was relationship. It was parish. Hmm. And the whole point of, I think, really this the summarizing it this way is to say the leaf spoke of the landscape, which became the reality of purgatory, which was the place by which relationship was restored. And that was the final and ultimate preparation for his entrance to meeting the shepherd and then heading into the mountains itself. Mm. 
And I think I tasted that in a little way on the Grand Traverse. That's incredible. Is that all right? That's great. Good. No, I love it. Um, Tolkien is Catholic, correct? Correct. And Lewis is Protestant, correct? Correct. So that's interesting just to think to your point earlier of like, yeah, when they're at the, what is it called? The bird and the baby? The eagle that's and the child? Yeah, yeah. The eagle and the child. When they're at that bar, which that's a great bar. I did have a chance to go there when I was in, um, that's in Oxford, is that right? Mm-hmm. And uh, small little pub, like tiny, tiny little pub. And there's like artwork of um, Middle Earth from, from Lord of the Rings and all these different things. But just to think like, yeah, how Lewis and Tolkien would have been talking these things out of like, okay, Tolkien as a Catholic, he obviously would have believed in purgatory. And Lewis did believe in purgatory, even though he should have been Catholic, even though he wasn't, right? And just the way that they would have been articulating these things, I think that's a really good insight of their own relationship. So even even Tolkien needed to have his relationships. And he's probably like working this out, making this an allegory, making this a story so that he can show people like you can't survive without relationship. And this is our personhood, right? So well done. That's Thank really powerful. Thank you. And, and, and as a last note, I mean, Tolkien and Lewis had a pretty significant falling out at the end of their life. Really? Yeah. They, it didn't just end, uh, you know, happily ever after. Uh, Tolkien was forever frustrated by Lewis's kind of ultra, uh, ultra Protestant uh, tendencies. He really disapproved of him marrying Joy, who was a divorced woman. Um, and so they, they kind of went their separate ways. Uh, so in some ways, Niggle is Tolkien. Parrish might be Lewis. Who knows? Hmm. But even even close friendships in this life, marriages even, sometimes these things don't work out. But there's a, there's a way that they will work out. Hmm. And the story will end happily for those who know God and who live in him. And the only way to know him is Jesus, who is the one who repairs, who detaches our heart, and who restores us to relationships in the cross. And that's... That's the that's what's exciting about being a Christian is to is the real belief in that that healing and reconciliation are possible and that they're not my responsibility because I can't do it, mm. but that they will happen so long as we, as you said earlier, remain in that kind of Marian posture of self surrender. Amen. Hey, this worked out pretty well for a late night podcast. Thanks for uh, going for it. You got any shout outs, great. and we'll wrap this thing up. Shout outs. Um, I'd like to pull a mic rap and shout out the whole world. Oh, jeez. <laughs> shout out the Presbyterate, <laughs> the, the Archdiocese of Denver Presbyterate. Uh, I'd like to shout out, um, yeah, all the priests. It's great to be up here. Sorry, I got no shout outs. Is it just me or when, when Rap and Machado podcast together, I look at the title and it's like a Dr. Seuss uh, story. The, like, I'm the same way. I'm like, what the heck did you guys <laughs> podcast about? Like, this is ridiculous, but okay, that's funny. Uh, shout out Bernadette Dalgetty who is a good friend of Andrew Polito's, met her at uh, the airport. She was coming through Denver. She lives out in Washington, D.C. Bernadette, thanks for listening. You're pretty awesome. Look forward to hanging with you soon. And then I got a, uh, a nice email from my friend at Ignatius Press, Thomas Jacoby. And he said, would you give a uh, recommendation for a podcast that Ignatius Press is doing called the Father Fessio in Five podcast? Five-minute excerpts from Father Fessio this is definitely worth listening to. If you've ever heard Fessio before, he was the founder of Ignatius Press. He, This is a guy who did his doctorate on Balthazar under Andre de Lubac. Uh, un, uh, he studied under Andre de Lubac, but he did under Ratzinger. So he, this guy is just amazing. Uh, he, he really is uh, one of the last great 
kind of men of that era. So he's doing this uh, little podcast, five-minute kind of excerpts from Fessio. Definitely check it out. And shout-out to Thomas, uh, who was recently married. And uh, thanks again, man. Thank you for supporting the podcast and for all you do at Ignatius Press. Awesome. All right. Leaf by Nepple. Leaf by Nepple. And <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and staying up with us tonight. Shiny Boy, thanks for a great podcast. And we'll have a great convocation. And we'll see you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys.